Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you from Wren, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion at Seattle Seahawks. The fuck do you want? <laughs> I called you earlier. You answered the phone that way. Because guess what, friends? Festivus isn't on the calendar for another 11 days here, 12 days as we record. But we're headed for an all, all grievances podcast. Festivus has come early. Festivus has come early this year. And with it. Naturally, we have. I was going to save this for a couple weeks later, but had to move it up in the rotation. The Black Raven Festivus Pale Ale is this week's beer. Festivus is an easy-to-drink, brilliant copper holiday pale ale brewed with orange peels, northwest cranberries, galangal root, and a melange of festive spices that should wrap you in the warmth of a snowed-in winter hearth. Which actually, I feel like they kind of missed the point of Festivus. It was too positive, too positive, because guess what? I've got a lot of problems with you people. The tradition of Festivus begins... With the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> Festivus isn't going to be over until one of the Seahawks can pin a, a single running back on the ground for a tackle. Oh, it might boy. not happen until after the draft. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to start with the toast this week and uh, start on a somber note as we're remembering Sonic's legend Paul Silas who died at age 79 first reported by longtime Boston Globe reporter Bob Ryan Silas was with the Sonics for the final three seasons of his career including their trips to the finals in both 1978 and 1979 the latter resulting in the only championship in franchise history that title was the third of Silas's career, adding to a pair he won with the Celtics. And Silas was an important veteran leader on a young team, particularly during a must-win Game 6 in Phoenix during the Western Conference Finals. Uh, Silas's absence felt after he retired in 1980 to become head coach of the San Diego Clippers. Silas later coached for the Hornets, Bobcats, and most famously was LeBron James's first coach with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Sadly, Silas's health prevented him from coming to Seattle as part of the 40th anniversary championship celebrations back in 2019, but uh, plenty of others from that team discussed him in my two-part Pelton Cast series remembering that team. Uh, also this week, sending out uh, our thoughts and uh, get well soon to Mississippi State and former Washington State coach Mike Leach, who was taken to the hospital Sunday after suffering a, quote, personal health issue at home, according to a school press release. So, uh hope he is feeling better all right to the, the toast this week we start with the congrats to UW coach Kalen DeBoer who shared Pac-12 coach of the year honors with Oregon State's Jonathan Smith in his first season on Montlake and won AP coach of the year for the Pac-12 incredibly DeBoer the first conference coach of the year for UW since Don James in 1991 can't even win it can't even win it on his own <laughs> I've got problems with everything on this podcast. Also, Chris Peterson didn't win it. He sent the Washington Huskies to the college football playoff. But no! Who did they give it to that year? I'm sorry, not the Washington Huskies. Literally any Pac-12 team to the college football He's playoff. He's an A Pac-12 team to the college football Hasn't playoff. Hasn't happened since. 
Who knows? I mean, eventually it will. It is guaranteed to happen starting in 2024, but uh, we'll see if it happens next year. What year was that? 2016? 2016, correct. I don't know who. I did not look up who won the Pac-12 They probably Coach gave it to David fucking Shaw. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know about that one. Uh, I, I would guess they probably gave it to Mike McIntyre, who took Colorado to the Pac-12 championship game in the They only... did give it to Mike McIntyre. The... Well, congrats, Mike McIntyre. <laughs> the, the only winning season, alas, of Mike McIntyre's career. Yeah, I wonder why the Pac-12 is going away forever. I was reading Roger Sherman's piece on the Colorado Oh, and the hiring... freshman offensive player of the year was Sam Dar- Darnold. <laughs> well, I may have had that one correct way down the line. <laughs> way, way down the line. <laughs> Uh, Roger Sherman wrote on the rigor about the Colorado hiring Deion Sanders, and I thought he was like being overly dismissive of Colorado because I was like, they made it to the Pac-12 championship game. And then I looked at the record, and that was their only above 500 season, only bowl game since they've been in the Pac-12. Well, Chris Peterson's achievement was merely average. <laughs> adequate. An was, adequate season. <laughs> you got a good job from Babe's owner. Attaboy. High degree of adequacy from Chris Peterson's yeah. only season to get a Pac-12 team to the college football playoff. Well, the Pac-12 voters were... Well, <laughs> no, they, they did co-coach for Kevin DeBoer. Uh, they also picked eight Huskies for the all-Pac-12 football teams. Wide receiver Rome Odunze, guard Jackson Kirkland, outside linebackers Jeremiah Martin and Braylon Trice voted first team. Quarterback Michael Penix Jr., tackle Troy Fautano, safety Alex Cook, and kicker Peyton Henry on the second team. And then lastly this week, we learned that Penix finished eighth in Heisman voting, becoming the eighth player in school history to finish in the top ten. Great. <laughs> Literally, this boils down to he lost one game. One game in the desert as the Mariners were playing in a playoff game. I feel like not enough people were paying attention to the fact that that was what was happening at the same time. The Huskies could not focus, clearly could not focus. They can't do it on a Sunday in Tempe. Well, Saturday. A Saturday in Tempe. <laughs> but a hot Saturday in Tempe. We like it. Look, CJ Stroud, call me when you do it on a sunny Saturday in Tempe. Call me when you do it. Just looking at this statistically, we know that stats like EPA and QBR overvalue rushing. So a player, an average quarterback like Bo Nix, who could not do it on a rainy Saturday night in Corvallis, could not do it there, couldn't even do it on a rainy Saturday night in Eugene, for that matter. Bo Nix is rated ahead of Michael Penix in QBR, and the stat that we know over it's rushing. But Michael Penix, as a non-rushing quarterback, managed to finish, where was he in QBR? 12th in QBR, straight EPA, Fourth in the country in a stat that is inherently biased against him. Eighth in voting. And it literally came down to one loss. One loss against Arizona State. The UCLA loss would have been totally acceptable. One loss against Arizona State was the difference between being on that stage and not being on that stage. It was the difference between eighth place and probably top four. I mean, I feel like it might have been hard to crock the top four. I think he would have finished fifth. If the if you were in the Pac-12 championship game, he did get nine first place votes, which is a surprisingly high number, all things considered. So out of how many? A lot. Uh, out of like seven hundred. Nine hundred and twenty-nine. Okay, out of nine hundred. That's, that's more first place votes people. than Russell Wilson got for MVP. 
Yeah, but 900 people don't vote for MVP. If you had to say 900 people voted for MVP, Russell Wilson would get a first place vote this year. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) He would get a spite first place vote. 900 people, literally the agendas of 900 people voting for college football. The, he he would have gotten one. It would be an anti-Nathaniel Hackett first place vote for Russell Wilson. <laughs> Anything more on this? Who cares? Uh, I Since you're in mood to be spiteful about everything, I don't know if I want to talk about the pizza I had for dinner that I posted on Instagram. Oh, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Stevie's Famous. Oh, and how was your pizza? <laughs> it was delicious. <laughs> From Stevie's Famous at Burien, which opened a few weeks ago. Uh, they're still in kind of the soft launch period. Uh, I think it opened Thursday through Sunday only in the evenings. But uh, uh, like New York style giant I was gonna slices. Ask, what, what type of pizza are we talking? Are you going to tell me next that Burien has America's best pizza? <laughs> I don't, I'm not going with America's best on, on this. But the water's different in Birion. It's delicious pizza nonetheless. So I had the pepperoni with the cupped pepperoni, obviously, is as necessary. And then the other slice I had, uh, uh, which is called the Normie at McDonald, I, which I'm, not, I'm curious on the backstory on that one, R.I.P. Norm McDonald. Uh, I think you just nailed it. So that has on it Copa. Uh, kind of like prosciutto, and then giant gobs of burrata on top of the already having mozzarella cheese. I f- kind of feel like all pizza should have burrata on it. I'm down for it. I'm actually very, very excited about this pizza. You can't even, as mad as you are today. No, I'm, I'm excited about it for Burian. Yes. Yes. I want, I want to have this pizza. Good for Burian. I'm looking at the website, and I'm like, I want this pizza right now. <laughs> all right, so... Because of the fact that this is an old grievances edition of the Pelton cast, we're going to start in order of grievances. And that means we've got to begin with the Seahawks losing at home to the Carolina Panthers to go 0-4 against the (laughs) NFC South, a division that has only beaten teams except when they played each other, when by definition one team has to win unless they both tie. Against all the other divisions in the NFL, they have won a total of eight games in 32 tries against the Seattle Seahawks, four out of four. So you were at this game. Takeaways. I just... It was bad. Like, I don't, I don't even know. I think, really, the, the grievances start at the play that Geno Smith clearly thought that the Panthers were offsides. The Seahawks were coming back at that point. Right? Was that it was seventeen fourteen when that happened? No, it was much earlier. It was or was it? It was seven nothing. I think at that point or no. three nothing. Because that was wasn't that their first touchdown that resulted no. after the Geno? It oh, was later than that. You're right. The first touchdown resulted off the first Geno pick. But that play definitely set the tenor for the entire game. Like the Seahawks were coming back looking good. Geno clearly. You saw the throw. I didn't see the offsides live. Right. And then you see the throw, and you're just like, what the fuck are you doing, Gino? Right? Because you don't see But I didn't have flags. that thought, because we you saw that... You was offsides. I was like, when are they going to throw this flag? And then they never threw the flag. And then you slow down the video, and you can clearly see that Brian Burns and whoever's on the other side are over the line. I posted the still shot after Mike Dugar, uh, third Pelton brother Mike Sean Dugar, posted the video of that, and you can see them leaning over the line. Like, we, we don't need the, or we do maybe need the semi-automated offside rule that we've seen with VAR in the World Cup because it showed that play should have never happened or should have been a free play. 
And that's clearly what Gino thought it was. I do think, I think sometimes quarterbacks are maybe too willing to throw up the ball on free plays, but like, cause that was, there was no success chance on that one, but he was pressured immediately because the defense was offside. Yeah. It's really easy to get to the quarterback. It turns out if you just get to not, not follow the rules. And that's the point. And I just feel like that play in particular set the tone for the entire game, but also losing Big Al Woods during the game, Shelby Harris being out with an injury, and then this god-fucking-awful Seahawks run defense. Like, can we just get to the draft right this second? Like, can we just go ahead and get Jalen Carter right now? He's a little busy right now. He would be excited about it. If we could just be like, we're trading in the two-pick, whatever that pick is, and we get Jalen Carter for the playoff run, (laughs) let's do that. Let's do that in this moment. We don't have any chance of drafting any other players. Can't trade the pick, but we get him now. The Seahawks need him so fucking badly. They need a ru- they need a run stuffing defensive tackle. This is what Pete Carroll needs in the year twenty of twenty two. I mean, that's the weird thing about this is the Seahawks have invested a lot in their defensive line. Maybe not in terms of draft picks necessarily, other than uh, the the ill fated uh, LJ Collier pick. But I actually I actually do think this comes down to more than that. Obviously, Shelby Harris being out and Big Al Woods being out. Those were huge issues. Brian Moni being pushed but it's around. not like Ford being pushed around. It's not like they've been good at stopping the run recently. They've been extremely bad at stopping the run since the Tampa Bay game. And this, it's gotten this is no better. also a Cody Barton issue. Like they showed the stats and they're like Cody Barton with a career high in tackles. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like what a great game. Career high in tackles for Cody Barton. There's one play in particular where he lined up like he just does not attack running backs. He does not attack players when he's tackling. And that is what you need to do as that kind of linebacker. It's the only job, more or less, like maintaining assignment. But when there is a running back in front of you or there's a a receiver in front of you, if there is a back with the ball, you need to attack those players instantly and make that tackle. That's what Bobby Wagner did. That's what the Jets do. That's what good defenses do throughout the league. And it is not what Cody Barton does. He's done. He's gone. He cannot be starting for this team. Honestly, they should... I'm not going to say they should release him right now, but... And this is not what KJ Wright does, but just fucking make the call, Pete. Make the call. You know he's out there. You know he's out there, Pete. Suck it up and make the call. KJ Wright is signing with this team tomorrow if they want him. But the thing is, Bobby Wagner was here last year. KJ Wright was here the year before that. They have a secondary this year. The defense was bad then too. They have a secondary now. They have a secondary. They are not. And there was even a little bit of pass rush in this game. Daryl Taylor got to got to Darnold uh, immediately after getting away with a personal foul for late hit. It was just run defense, more or less, right? Like, the secondary wasn't abused in the game. I meant to bring up those stats. Well, they were playing against Sam Darnold, so any completions that occurred were really probably a bad sign for the Seahawks defense. But yes, I mean, Carolina passed for one, 120 yards in this game. Darnold had 5.5 yards per attempt without factoring out the 15 that they lost on sacks. They could not pass the ball almost at all, and yet still were able to run. They were completely one-dimensional in the second half and still were able to run at will. The second half in particular, and you know, the, like the numbers are not that impressive, right? The Deontay Foreman, 21 for 74. Chuba Hubbard at 14 for 74 was quite a bit better, but Sam Darnold scrambling, Raheem Blackshear... Or whatever. I actually was thinking, you tweeted this about Raheem Blackshear, about being like, good thing they trade up. Well, because the Jets, though, with Bam Knight going off, and I was like, undrafted free agent. I don't even think he was on a team a few weeks ago. They're like, good thing that the Jets traded up to draft Bam Knight. 
See, I was saving that one because I thought Chuba Hubbard was a fourth-round pick by the Panthers uh, in 2021. I was like, that's a little too high for me to retweet it. And Deontay Foreman, I had not remembered this. He actually got drafted in the third round, not by Carolina. They just got him as a, a free agent for basically nothing. But uh, both of those guys were at least like reason mid-round draft picks. But Blackshear, undrafted, and he was the one who really delivered the dagger in this game. It just, it's it's so difficult to watch too to be at the stadium and see the other team running all over you, or just like being being one dimensional and being unstoppable. It's what I was saying about last year being at the UW Michigan game. Like, as much as I rationally know that passing is much more efficient than rushing, is, is... but if they're passing the ball against you nonstop too and you can't stop that, that is also frustrating. I not, think it's, it's not as viscerally frustrating as the running thing it, because it's it like, why like is this working? You should be able to stop it. It's just like you should be able. Literally, to just put some bodies up there and stop it. And that's what the Seahawks couldn't do in this game. And I think that's why it was frustrating. It being the Panthers playing in Sam Darnold, like the Panthers, I, I think they had they came into the game with a fairly good defensive plan. I don't know if the Seahawks necessarily shot themselves in the foot strategy wise on the offense. I think Gino had one of his worst game, had probably his worst game of the season. Oh, but, he did. We'll get to that. But factoring in, even with the interception, right, there were some kind of questionable play calls. There were a couple drives in the second half I mean, where I, they did run and then screen pass. I don't think it was and the, the, sc- the screen passes in particular. I don't think they did a lot of Shane Waldron shit in this game. Exactly. And when they did try to do Shane Alden shit, the Panthers were completely ready for it. That's what's concerning long-term is why, why did the Panthers ha- seem like they knew what was coming? He didn't ultimately play that bad of a game, though, Gino. Like, Do you, you want to have the Gino conversation Yeah, let's now? have the Gino because conversation. There's, there's, it's time for the Gino discourse. Third Baldwin brother Ben Baldwin tried to bring it up last week. People, people were, were not hearing no. it. It makes sense because it was Gino Corn even more than we anticipated last week when we recorded on Sunday night after the game. It was Gino Cor- Coronation Week after leading a game-winning drive and throwing it for a career high yards. Even though that probably wasn't best Gino's best game when you look at the turnovers in that game and his completion percentage. So what Ben pointed out, much to the dismay of many Seahawks fans is that after ranking fifth in EPA per play over the first five weeks, Gino dropped to 15th over the subsequent seven weeks, now eight, which is still where he ranks even after a much weaker performance on Sunday. And before this most recent game, ranked 18th in PFF grade over that span after having been the, had the best PFF grade over the first five weeks of the season. So even though Gino's overall numbers are strong, there has ser- clearly been some degree of regression. And then the other thing that stood out to me, and I think that it's probably more important than Pete Carroll, to Pete Carroll than the EPA, and you know they obviously have their own grading that is not PFFs, but I, I do think that's meaningful because, look, we saw during the preseason, Gino was, I think, PFFs certainly highest-graded Seahawks, but one of the highest-graded quarterbacks who played in the preseason, even though the results were not very good because he had so many drops, that did prove predictive going into the regular season. So I think there is a, some signal there. But turnovers are what Pete Carroll is going to focus on. First six games, two interceptions by Geno Smith, no fumbles lost. The last seven games, he has now thrown six interceptions and lost four fumbles. That's kind of wild how many fumbles. And like individually, I think you can explain away almost any of those plays. 
I didn't see the first interception. I was not in the game at the first interception. The first interception was more a great play by J.C. Horn than it was a bad play by Geno, I think. Okay. Like, I mean, he almost got picked at the end of this game, too. But yeah, he had some other potential turnover passes in this game. PFF so. is not going to like that play that ended up not being an interception, but that... The, the J.C. P- Horn also the, played the, the on J- the J.C. Horn yes. caught and had one toe out of bounds. Yes. I like that, for all intents and purposes, that was a turnover. The The pick on the what he thought was a free play, it was sort of just like, sure, throw it. But also, like if you're going to take the free play, maybe make a better throw on the free play. Like, make a hypothetically makeable throw or whatever. Don't just throw it right to the defense. Because it's still a play. Yeah, I mean, he was just under duress in that situation. I, I don't know. Honestly, like, the, we are going to see what's going to come from Gino. I still believe in Gino. I mean, look, even this stretch... Like, he's rated as an average NFL starting quarterback. Yes. There's huge value in that. That's extremely difficult for teams to find. Some teams even start Sam Darnold at quarterback as their third quarter starting quarterback of the season. So, but the question is, if, the question becomes a lot trickier when it's, if Geno might be an average starting quarterback as compared to what is now almost certainly going to be a top five pick coming from the Denver Broncos. And we've got plenty of time to discuss that, but it is a conversation now in a way that it wasn't four or five weeks ago. But but I hate to be on some Pete Carroll shit here. The difference in this game, like you look at yards per play, obviously the Panthers ran a lot more plays than the Seahawks ran, but the Seahawks gained not a lot more, but like a yard per play more than the Panthers did in this I game. I mean, that's a pretty substantial amount, really. They The Seahawks ultimately were the better team on the field. And as a whole, you play this game a thousand times, they're the better team, right? And the difference in this game was turnovers. Yeah. And that's that's where those two turnovers, that's really the only stat that you can look at and say that the Panthers really dominated. It was like they ran the ball and the Seahawks passed the ball or whatever. But those two turnovers and how they swung the game, and it kind of just boiled down to a couple of drives and things got out of whack. I think that the Geno Day, and this is why I st- I'm not giving up hope in Geno or whatever, the Geno Day could have looked very different had a couple of things gone slightly differently. Yeah. The, the one thing that I think is more of a concern today is that this was the first time, even in that stretch that Ben pointed out, his completion percentage over expected was still number one in the NFL in that span. And that's something that also has predictive power in conjunction with EPA. Today was the fir- the worst completion percentage over expected of his Seahawks career, including the three games last season. Wow. And only the second time all season that he's been below average in that regard. So that was a little bit different. And it was the first time that we've seen a team come after him as aggressively as the Panthers did. I mean, the thing about this game that was frustrating to me, you mentioned the things that were frustrating about it to you. It was how much it felt like a Russell Wilson era Seahawks December loss. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. This is a Cardinals game. (laughs) Steve Wilkes only coached one season with the Cardinals and actually somehow the Seahawks managed to beat the Cardinals in Seattle that season. I don't. That's not true. It's it's impossible to believe, but the the records indicate that Sebastian Janikowski kicked a game-winning field goal to win that one game Steve Steve Wilkes coached in, in Seattle with the Cardinals. But like the blitzing, the slow start on offense... All of it. It was just it was kind of so gross. Seahawks. It was kind of gross. It yeah. was one of those Sundays when you're like, it wasn't really supposed to rain, and then it was kind of gross and rainy the entire day, and you're like, you know what? This actually sucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks, NFL, for backloading the schedule. Couldn't have added that extra week in August. No, no. We have to go deep into January with the schedule. Thank you for that. There are still three more home games left. 
They need to know whether they, people can do it on a, on a rainy afternoon in The Seattle. Seahawks can't do it on a rainy <laughs> no, afternoon in Seattle. They very much can't. The NFL has reduced all joy out of going to a football game by being like, what if we play all of the games in December and January in Seattle? Uh, that's it. That's the game. And going wow. 0-4 against the NFC South is categorically awful. Seeing how they did throughout the all those other games that you're talking about. 1-11 against the NFC North. They've played 12, or the AFC North. They've played 12 games against the AFC North. They've won one of them, four against the Seahawks in four tries. It's absurd. And it's not like the AFC North is some incredible division. The Pittsburgh Steelers play there and the Cleveland Browns. I like the Steelers. Uh, those, those are, they're all fairly good teams in the AFC North. Hopefully the Seahawks are better than the Steelers and the Cleveland Browns. They just can't do it against these teams. I don't know why. I do not get why that happens. But I also know that you know who was watching that game could see that we cannot stop the run. Was it the San Francisco 49ers? The San Francisco I mean, they actually 49ers. weren't watching that game. They, they were, were a little busy But they are at aware that the Seahawks cannot stop the run. And well, that is going to be what they're going to do against the Seahawks. I cannot conceive. And also... We'll, we'll get to that matchup. But we're like... Oh, this defense, this Panthers defense shut down Geno Smith. Well, guess what, motherfuckers? There's a lot of reasons to be troubled and concerned about the matchup against the 49ers and one reason to not be troubled and concerned. But, I mean, the schedule all of a sudden is pretty imposing. Like, one of the things we, one of the reasons, you know, we believed in the Seahawks before the Russell Wilson trade was, oh, fourth place schedule, they get the Giants and the Jets. Turns out that wasn't such a great thing after all. The Giants, the Giants have fallen back to earth here. It but doesn't matter if you can't beat the Panthers, though. I, it still does. The only thing that we have going for us after this week is the Broncos loss, yes. coupled with the Rams win. Yes. And the knowledge that we are still more or less living on borrowed time, that the Seahawks can have a year. We, this is ultimately like it's not. This is a better season than what we talked about preseason. We talked about like worst case scenario would be like a seven and ten season, which you know, is it out of the question? It is not out of the question. But like the. They're more or less living on borrowed time by even being competitive at this point in the year that was supposed to be a rebuilding year. Correct. Being here. And at the same time, it's not like they're fucking up their draft pick because there's the other draft pick from the Broncos. It's not like they need the draft pick to be in the top five. Yes. Because they're already having a top. I yes. mean, still, the better the draft pick is, the better long term. But the other thing you we haven't gotten into about this game, and again, longer term trends is the Seahawks' inability to run the ball. Because it turns out that in three of their last four games, their running backs have combined for fewer than 40 yards on the ground. And everyone wanted to make this a, well, Ken Walker III and DJ Dallas were out, so the Seahawks couldn't run. Which, first off, again, as we just talked about, the other side, a team drafted, traded their running back, who they drafted in the first round, and went with a journeyman, a fourth-round pick in his second year, and an undrafted rookie. And that was the team that ran all over the Seahawks. So I think you saw an example of finding running backs who can contribute. But also, like, this was already happening. They went 10 for 17 against Tampa Bay when Ken Walker III got all those carries. And 17 carries for 36 yards two weeks ago against Las Vegas. Ken Walker had two good runs against the, the Rams. And all of a sudden, everyone figured thought the offense the running game was fixed but it turns out it was not 
And at some point, like, you're going to have to run the ball a little bit with a little bit of effectiveness, especially if you believe that's necessary to run some of the good offense. This is just, I swear to God, we're, we're living the, uh, the same season we've lived in the past. I mean, this Right? Feels, we're like, they have to bring Marshawn Lynch back because there are no running backs. It feels so we much. We through this and it was bad. It feels so much like the 2019 loss to Arizona right before Christmas. I hate it. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. It's just, that's it. The Seahawks are the Seahawks. The, again, the only good thing that could come out of this is, again, who knows? Like, the Seahawks traffic, where does that sit now? I, have, I pulled that up a second ago. Uh, their own pick is now at 17, and obviously the Broncos pick sitting at number two. Like, reinforcements are coming. You know, I can, you could, you can write it in stone that there's going to be a defensive player taken in the first round by the Seahawks of this draft, right? A defensive lineman. Or, Probably, or edge rusher. There's pretty much, yes. Like, you could pretty much set that in stone that they are going to draft a defen- defensive lineman of some kind in the first round of this draft with one of those two picks. So you know that something is coming, right? The G- Gino is the larger question, but it's just the fucking Seahawks over and over and over again. And we get these really fun little glimpses of having running backs run well or whatever, and it gets taken from us so quickly. Why can we not have... Is this true with every team? Does every team get a little bit of Thomas Rawls and a little bit of Rashad Penny? Is that what we get and maybe a season of Marshawn Lynch? I mean, running backs are highly injured in general, but what is unusual is that Thomas Rawls... Like, there was, what, a game or two where... Who was the running back that was in Baltimore and then came back last season? Or in Alex Collins. Yeah. yeah. Like, there was a moment or two where Alex Collins played pretty well. But, like, we have not for a long time had the Blackshear come off the bench and rip off a 30-yard run and a touchdown. Like, every that's the thing that every other team seems to get, but somehow the Seahawks don't, don't seem to get because of the fact that it seems like their running back injuries coincide with when their run blocking collapses. In this case, not because of offensive line injuries. The offensive line is... Healthy it's, in terms of It's a of young offensive line. I mean, that's the, that's the but other they've thing. But they've been much better in terms of pass blocking than run blocking, which is unusual for a Pete Carroll team. It was just Gino wasn't sharp today. Again, Russ has had these games. Oh, we so saw many. It. Yeah, that's the that's the one thing you don't want to get too down on this because yeah, you can still be a very good quarterback and have games like this. Should we talk about the 49ers? Sure, it's over. The, the, this, I, I they can. I think they can lose to the Niners, and the season will not be over. Right. Yeah, of course. Can they lose to the Niners? Does does nine and eight make the playoffs in the NFC though? I think it probably will. Okay. The good news is they have the tiebreaker on the Lions, who are coming no, up in that rearview mirror. <laughs> Objects in the rearview mirror. Are Aren't the Lions playing the Panthers here. next week? Are they? I think they are. <laughs> That's gonna be an interesting one. You're gonna They're, need you're gonna need more than however many points they. Have. Or no, they 30. they play them on Christmas Eve. Okay, you're gonna need more than thirty points to beat Jared Goff, <laughs> a star NFL quarterback like Jared Goff. So it's been a strange season for the 49ers, who lost their starting quarterback Trey Lance in Week Two against the Seahawks <laughs> as they were shutting them out on offense. Well, only to win that game with Jimmy Garoppolo taking over, then lost 11-10 at Denver. One that of the Broncos' losses. That haunts me. It's the San Francisco 49ers. And we're just 3-4 and four after losing to Kansas City in Week 7. They then snapped off four consecutive wins with Christian McCaffrey in the lineup and looked very much like Super Bowl contenders before losing Garoppolo to a broken foot in Week 13 that ended at least his regular season. 
Then with rookie seventh-round pick Brock Purdy stepping in for his first meaningful action, they still beat Miami 33-17 last week. Although, as we noted on last week's pod, the offense wasn't as impressive as it looks from that scoreline. But the offense was as impressive as it looked at this week's scoreline as they beat 30, Tampa Bay 35-7 to on Sunday in Purdy's first career start. He went 16-21 of 21 for 185 yards and two touchdowns before Josh Johnson came in to uh, finish out the blowout. They certainly relied on their playmaking talent. Uh, the average depth of target for Purdy was just 5.6 yards per pass, according to RBSTM.com, which ranks in the ninth percentile of all QB games this season. And sadly, the 49ers may have lost one of those playmakers when Debo Samuel left the game on a cart with a left knee injury. The Niners did have a 91-yard touchdown drive in their next possession, but their only score after halftime came on a McCaffrey 38-yard touchdown run with a short field after a turnover. And then another plot twist, as Kyle Shanahan told reporters post-game that Purdy has an oblique injury, although he would have left the game either way due to the score. So there's some chance that Josh Johnson will be starting a quarterback for the 49ers on Thursday. Oh my god. Well, we have to, we have to approach this as if it's Brock Purdy. Yeah, I, that is the expectation. But like, I, I guess a lot of those plays were made on the ground, short passes, extending the field laterally ra- rather than vertically. Right. And But you look at Brock Purdy's stat line, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, he still did complete. You know, his CPOE was outstanding today. So even by, you know, even those short passes, you shouldn't necessarily be completing the 80% of those that he was. And then you look at the Christian McCaffrey, 14 for 119. And this very week, again, Shelby Harris probably will be back. We don't know about Elwoods. Like, there's a chance that those two players will be back. But... This very week, the Carolina Panthers ran all over you, and all of a sudden, it's going to be Christian McCaffrey next week. I mean, the 49ers, the interesting thing is, so let's talk about Christian McCaffrey's impact on this offense. Uh, That was his best game with the Niners. He also caught two passes for 34 yards and a TD, so another game where he had a touchdown rushing and receiving. He's averaging 4.8 yards per carry in San Francisco as compared to 4.6 in Carolina. His yards per target as a receiver up to 7.3 from the first six games, but actually down from last season pretty substantially. So when they traded for McCaffrey, their offense was 26th in rush DVOA. They're 18th since then. Overall offense up from 15th to 5th. Uh, those, those stats both not counting this Sunday's game. Uh, part of the issue is they also were pretty depleted at running back before the trade. Elijah Mitchell came back after it. He's played just four games this season due to a pair of injuries. Then they traded leading rusher Jeff Wilson Jr. to Miami. Uh, Jordan Mason has come on the last two weeks. I'm not sure where he came from, but 19 carries for 107 yards the last two weeks for Jordan Mason. Brandon Ayuk has probably been their best receiver this season ahead of Devo. He's catching 67.5% of his targets entering Sunday for 8.4 yards per target as compared to 58% catch rate, 6.6 yards per target for Devo. The ever-reliable George Kittle lowered target share but catching 70% of his targets for 8.7 yards per target. And I do think that's a little bit of the, like, spreading it out, right? It's not that Jordan Mason is necessarily an amazing running back or that the Niners are just phenomenal at finding players like this, right? It's about the space that's created by those playmakers that you're talking about on the outside. But the other thing is, like, the 49ers historically have not been that good at running. Like, everyone thinks they're really good at running because of the playoff run leading up to the Super Bowl and because they do run a lot. But typically what happens a lot of the time with the Niners and not so really last the last two weeks, obviously, is that they get to third and long and Jimmy Garoppolo bails them out. Yes. 
which is why they Jimmy Garoppolo didn't... and George Kittle and Debo Samuel and sure. Brandon Ayuk. But a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo has bailed them out in a way that other Niners quarterbacks have been incapable of doing. I before this game against the Buccaneers, my expectation was that I thought this the Niners game was a winnable game, even counting the Panthers loss that the Seahawks took today. So when you didn't know what had happened in the Tampa Bay game? No, no. Like, I saw it happening, right? Oh, okay. I mean, it was 21-0 before we were even in the stadium. Like, the that game was over very, very quickly. And it was just like, oh, fuck. Jordan Mason, undrafted out of Georgia Tech, by the way. I think they traded up for him. Um, <laughs> uh, after, after this week's game, the... Brock Purdy game. I do think we have to slightly reassess our perspective of Brock Purdy. For sure. And I think we just, we have no idea about Debo Samuel. Like, I think we probably should assume that Debo Samuel is not going to be playing on Thursday. It didn't sound real optimistic. It's a quick turnaround. How big of a difference I mean, the, qu- the question is it? not, the quick turnaround, like the question is whether Debo Samuel is going to be able to play at all this season. Yes, I, think I mean, that's... I think that's probably the expectation. I'm just saying, being kind optimistic on the 49ers end. The pressure that this offense puts on your linebackers and the tackling on the outside is a huge amount of pressure. And for the Seahawks defense to be able to make those plays, I just, we have not seen it at any point. We have not seen it in either outside tackling or inside tackling. This Seahawks defense has not done it very well, maybe aside from a very, very short stretch right in the middle of the season. Which remains perplexing. They're going to get the ball out quickly. Brock Purdy today took zero sacks from that Buccaneers defensive line. Like, this is not—I just—best case scenario, they're trying to do their shit, and the Seahawks make tackles, and Brock Purdy isn't able to bail them out. That's just defensively. Like yeah, yeah, then you get to the other side of the football. That is just containing the 49ers. And even that seems slightly far-fetched to me. Because as a reminder, again, the Seahawks did not score an offensive touchdown in week two against the Niners. That defense has been a constant. They are number two. They were number two in defensive DVOA entering Sunday when they did not hurt themselves by limiting Tom Brady to a season low 4.6 yards per attempt, picking him off twice in addition to recovering fumble, uh, not, not by Brady, but by Rashad White. Uh, entering Sunday, opponents had scored on a league low 25.6% of their possessions against the Niners. They are number six in sack rate almost entirely because of Nick Bosa, who has 14 and a half to lead the NFL. They are also number four in interception percentage coming into Sunday with nine different players having interceptions this season. Oh, and their rush defense is amazing, too. They're number two there. Uh, with the linebacker duo of Dre Greenlaw and Fred Warner, both over 90 tackles, but in a more positive way than the Seahawks linebacker tackles. So and, and that's something that we saw today lot. from Gino also, though, was he took a lot of sacks. He took three sacks against the Panthers. And again, it looked like Russell Wilson. <laughs> like it was, it was very Russell Wilson-esque. I, I just... I can't really see... I mean, they can get Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf open. I believe that this offense can do that. And they can get their tight ends open. Like, I believe that they can do those things in the secondary against the 49ers. It's more about, will this offensive line be able to protect long enough to be able to get them the ball and to be able to develop those plays and to have it, have it happen consistently, right? I think there were, maybe there was one deep pass hit today. The long one to Marquise Goodwin, who had an awesome game, by the way. Yeah. Love Marquise Goodwin. Uh, but, like, to be able to have those big plays and to also open up the middle of the field for DK and Tyler Lockett, it's going to take time and it's going to take the offensive line holding up. 
And I'm not necessarily convinced at this point that that's something that can happen for the Seahawks. I mean, look, the upside here is it's football. Shit happens. Things are very random. And that's where we're at. And in the Seahawks they're have playing Brock Purdy and they're playing the Niners without Debo Samuel. Like at some point, something has to give a little bit. I mean, the Seahawks have historically been pretty good at defending Kyle Shanahan offenses. Like I don't, it wasn't necessarily the defense was that bad in, in week two. It was more just that the offense was putting them in such difficult situations time. And again. I do think, I think that the, the Niners offense does not necessarily play as well into this team's strengths. Yes. The Seahawks were good at defending Kyle Shanahan offenses when they had KJ Wright and Bobby Wagner. Yes. And neither of them are walking through that door, although the Rams could just release Bobby Wagner right now. Seems unlikely. Just, he should ask for his release. It's, it's kind of sad watching Bobby Wagner play out the string. I mean, he's still playing awesome, but it's like, and, and obviously they did come back and win, and huge for the Seahawks that they did come back and win last Just last ask Thursday. for your release Baker style. Be like, I saw Baker do it. He came out and won a game for us. I'm going to ask for my release also. <laughs> Baker, Bobby does not, or Baker did not have uh, three years left on his contract. Just come on. Albeit with limited guarantees. I, I understand we didn't know what things would look like. Bobby needed to be on a new deal. He was not going to take a new deal here, whatever. But just put him in the middle of this defense. Ugh. The Seahawks will go to such great lengths to try to find another player that is exactly Bobby Wagner right now. Oh, I think Bobby Wagner is eventually going to be back with the Seahawks. I just don't think it's going to be by Thursday. <laughs> I've gone for bold prediction. By Thursday. <laughs> Uh, percentage chances of victory. What, what pick would you trade for Bobby Wagner? Assuming that the trade deadline hadn't happened, what pick would you trade a second round pick for Bobby Wagner right now? No, probably not. Third round pick? I would consider it. You have to trade a third round pick for Bobby Wagner right now. I understand, but also knowing that he's on a three year deal. You trade that third round pick so you don't have to find another player like Bobby Wagner in the third round. I mean, if you do find a player like Bobby Wagner in the third round, he is younger and under contract, a better contract. So that's that's the upside of it. But uh, they have not not shown the ability to find a new Bobby Wagner just yet. Good thing they drafted LJ Collier in the first round. I just this de- ugh, this defense is so bad. They really have made over some parts. It's like it's like the poor man's version of the 2011 season. Right, but I think people thought it was going to be like the 2011 season, where the defense really grew into it over the course of the season. Like when they had those four good weeks, people bought hard for that. There, the secondary, I still believe generally in the secondary. I think the secondary is pretty good, and I I do think that they've obviously like Tariq Wool and Mike Jackson. They're playing well. I believe in Ryan Neal. It's just they need, in the same way that they needed to go out and get Michael Bennett and Cliff Avril. They need those two players. Somebody needs to hand deliver a Bobby Wagner in his second season or whatever, and they need Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett again it's, on pretty good contracts. It's still in hindsight amazing that they the market was not that interested in Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill in that offseason. Uh, percentage chances of victory on Thursday night? 28%. 33%. A little more optimistic than you are because, the again, I had pizza. The only thing that's going to happen is... Because you had pizza? Yeah. <laughs> 
You weren't at that fucking game today. You weren't listening to the broadcast. Oh, that was the other question. Is what was worse, being at the game or having to listen to Mark Schlereth? It was it, like it, there has never been a color analyst who was more ready for a team to run the ball as consistently and effectively as the Carolina Panthers did. Is did long to, is was longtime offensive lineman Mark Schlereth. God, he must have just ate. I would have fucking died listening to that. He was he was in his element today with a question. sunny and cold night on Thursday. This does, I will say, the Seahawks have gen- they've been good at night. If if this, as we were saying, if this is a Seahawks team, right? You take everything else out of it, and ultimately what they are is they are a Seahawks under Pete Carroll team. They're not different than they were two years ago necessarily. Doesn't matter who's playing quarterback. Doesn't matter who the coordinators are. The shit is always going to stay the same. A, a clear Thursday night in December with an amped up crowd. There's going to be a lot of Niners fans there too. Oh man, is that is kind of the situation that the Seahawks have excelled in. Also, how fucking bad are these crowds now? I don't. Again, I don't know if you can hear it on the broadcast. It is like pulling teeth to get people to stand or even cheer on a third down. No, broadcasters are like still fitting in, in into the Seahawks narrative. I mean, I think. Maybe it's better than other stadiums or whatever, but this it's obviously we don't have much. Comparison. We are so far from the standard that was set in the early 2010s and that was existing before then. Right. The crowd was something hap- success made the crowd bad. The yeah. Seahawks got I mean, too I think good also and just, the crowd got bad. People well, got used to winning, too. There wasn't the same secondary market for tickets in 2012 that there is now, like there's been a ongoing evolution where home field advantage is diminishing across all sports. I'm just like, people, can we even cheer? Like, what is going on? At least they didn't do the fucking take me home country roads. Oh, they, they can't that? They listened to your grievance <laughs> from last time? That's the one non-grievance this week. Yeah. There you go. <sighs> so next grievances you want to do, Gonzaga? No, no, no. They're number three on the list. Okay, Mariners. This is not a grievance for you. This is a... D- Oh, a feather in your cap. It's an amazing <laughs> offseason so far. It's not a feather in my cap. Every signing that you see with a, a big free agent signing with another Ooh. team, you say, great, another another opportunity for the Mariners to have not signed a player. Uh, I say, a few. penny saved is a penny <laughs> earned, my friend. If you missed out or, uh, like, you know, avoided that one, dodged that one. Oh, Let's go dodged with that one. a bullet. Uh, well, first Congrats off. Congrats on the net profits, Mariners ownership. <laughs> a toast to you. Farewell to Mitch Hanniger, who agreed to a three-year, $45 million deal with the Giants last Tuesday after six seasons with the Mariners, including an all-star appearance in 2018. Hanniger was a key figure in the Mariners' 2020 run, including going four of five with the home run and five RBI in the penultimate game of the season <sighs> as the Mariners kept their playoff hopes alive and vowed afterwards the team would end the playoff drought. In 2022, there as they go. did, limited to just 57 games last season by injury. Hanniger did start all five playoff games as the Mariners got back there. So the Mariners left the winter meetings with their biggest addition being they drafted a reliever in the Rule 5 draft. <laughs> Completely inactive. They even said they were inactive. They were like, they were like well, we're not taking meetings. <laughs> we're just in a conference room. So let's... let's the phone was not ringing. Let's go over what uh, Chief Baseball Decision Maker Jerry Depoto had to say on Seattle Sports 710 first prior to the one-year meetings. 
said, the decisions you make today, and this is more difficult for someone who's not looking more broadly, don't just affect your 2023 payroll. You're not going to go from $115 million to $215 million in a year, because what ends up happening is in two years from that point, you're at $315. The escalating costs really do start to pile up. And then last week after the winter meetings, defended the lack of spending by saying we went from 23rd in payroll to 21st in payroll to 17th in payroll. We've been on a steady climb and we are a middle market. That's what we are in today's Major League Baseball. Our payroll has always been a middle to top 10 payroll market. We've always spent commensurate with our market or higher. We'll continue to do that. Our payroll has risen each year of this rebuild. It's on that trajectory again. Which first off, inflation. Uh (laughs) Yes. Because what everyone's spending a lot more. I mean, th- this idea of the front office, it doesn't work anymore. Maybe there was a time that you could have this conversation with baseball fans or fans of any sport, and they'd be like, mm, yes, ah, yeah, good point, good point, good point. Fans are smarter now than they used to. And this idea of gaslighting the, the, the fans of Seattle into thinking that this is a small market or a mid-market in baseball is just not true. There's well, it is no a such, mid-market. I agree it's a mid-market. no such thing. Again, we've talked about this. The money, the Padres are showing that the money is endless. It is about whether you want to spend it or not. When we're talking about billionaires, this idea that I think the Mets are paying like an extra 70 million in payroll tax or whatever, it is literally nothing to these people. Like it is just about, it's a greed issue is ultimately what it comes down to. It's about wanting to make small amounts of net profits vis-a-vis winning. And you have the choice in modern baseball. You can either choose to try to win games or you can choose to go on the radio and tell your fans that they live in a small market. Like that's it. This is a fan base in Seattle that can support a team up through basically the highest levels of baseball. The Dodgers weren't always the Dodgers. Right? There was a time period when the Dodgers weren't crazily outspending every other team. Same with the Angels, like all these teams. Is Texas a different that radically different of a market than Seattle is? Is San Diego that radically different of a market than Seattle is? We saw what it looks like having a competitive baseball team in Seattle, and the Mariners enraptured the city of Seattle for five months. The Mariners were more important than the Seahawks for a long period of time. They were the most important team in the city of Seattle, Washington, and that's the heights that they can get to if they're good, but they have to be willing to spend to get to the point of being good. And this idea that we need to be worried about the 2026 payroll is just ludicrous because those contracts are not as hard to get off of as Jerry DePoto is talking about. And the, the, you have to start spending money at some point. This idea of net value, right, on a contract, I agree that's the ultimate place to to find players, but they don't grow on trees or whatever. It is extraordinarily difficult in the sport of baseball to find a player who's going to contribute at the major league level and have that high of a degree of net value vis-a-vis their contract. Even Julio Rodriguez, they had it, and they're going to get excess value from him, but they already signed him to a 14-year deal. Like, there is, there is. if you have a player like that, they're not actually that cheap for that long anymore. The climate and culture has changed. And the Mariners, I will mind you, have, well, I, have I, I'm going to push back on that particular point because I think what's happening is Julio Rodriguez is not going to make as much in year 6 through 10 of this deal or whatever as he would if he got to free agency and got signed to a 12-year deal. $300 million. I mean, it would be much more than that by the time he got to free agency, but you understand. I think Julio probably shouldn't have signed that deal. After yeah. this offseason, I think he kind of fucked up. 
I'm sure he'll be fine. They're, <laughs> they're paying more in the front of this contract to pay less in yes, the middle of this sure. contract. But, but the, the, you don't win games based upon excess value in contracts. And at some point, you need to start stacking up war and wins in baseball. And if you're making more money from, or if Cal Raleigh's war is exceeding his contract or whatever, then again, you slot Cal Raleigh in. Like, he's a fucking coup at this point. I don't think anyone's discussing. I don't know where that came but from. I'm so just, I'm just saying he's the type of player who they have who is going to excess value, exceed his contract or whatever. But you need to do a lot of that. Just being above doesn't actually win you baseball games. And at some point, you need to try to win baseball games. So if the only goal is to find players who are going to be on good contracts, you will have no players on your team, or you'll have a bunch of players on good contracts and no wins. I mean, I think you can put together, Cleveland has that kind of a team right now. Their payroll is nothing, and they were in the, in the playoffs last year because literally their entire team is rookies. Like, they have a younger team than the Mariners. Which and they probably have a better generation of, of young players than the Mariners have also. An interesting thing in and of itself. But so... The, this idea of market, that is the, the piece to me. Well, let's okay, talk about the facts. Maybe I did some research here. Did you consider the possibility right, that I, ESPN's Kevin Bell, did some research? And you found everything he said was totally right. I did not find that. This is not what I wanted. Okay. Again, to be clear, I didn't want the Mariners to sign an 11-year contract for Trey Turner. Okay, but does not mean I wanted can... them to sign zero free agents. So the Seattle <laughs> and Times... And let Mitch Hanniger go. That was a big piece of it. The Seattle Times noted the payroll is currently projected 17th by Fangraphs at $135 million. The Seattle-Tacoma market, you will note, is the 12th TV market, according to Nielsen DMA, which is 15 spots higher than San Diego. The Padre is currently projected for a $235 million payroll by Fangraphs. Some better comps, perhaps, for the Mariners. The Twins, the number 14 media market, had $142 million payroll last year with Carlos Correa. And are uh, in the mix, I think, also for Carlos Correa this year. One would think. And the Rockies, number 16 media market, not a team that has been as, was, is quite as promising as the Mariners, $158 million projection. So there's, there's a lot more money for them to spend. And, and again, I didn't want them to sign the 11-year contract, but signing Mitch Hanniger to a three-year $45 million contract is not going to affect your spending in 2025 and 2026. Like... Signing Jock Peterson to a one-year contract for $17.5 million. Apparently, I loved the Giants offseason secretly since they signed both of these guys. But the, the Giants also were trying to sign all of these players to 11-year deals, too. And just, just came up short. Yes. So there, now, the one thing I will say, the, the one thing I will say in the Mariners' defense is that the offseason is not over yet. We don't know what moves they're going to continue to make. But they need another outfielder because you look at it, Teoscar Hernandez was the move they made to add salary this offseason, trading for him, entering his third year of arbitration. And he's projected to make like 14 and a half million, 14 million, somewhere in that range. But then they traded away Jesse Winker to get Colton Wong and replace Adam Frazier. So they're minus, net minus one starter right now mm -hmm. from the offseason. So they need another outfielder. they've also outfielder. traded Kyle Lewis, who, who wasn't, you wouldn't slot in to be a starter, but part of the log jam. The log jam is gone. They're, they're, like right now, Jared Kilnick has to start every day for the Mariners. <laughs> and Sam Haggerty, which Hagerty. is great. But, Wait, not both. No, because you have well, Teoscar, Kelenic, but they, and Julio. The idea is that you're going to have four outfielders and one of them plays DH. Because guess yes. what? Carlos Santana is also gone. So they need some guys. There are some remaining outfield free agents of note. Andrew Benintendi is still out there. 
Michael Conforto, and Jerickson Profar. And then, of course, the other thing that's looming out there is a Brian Reynolds trade. But here's what I'll say. As much as I generally have kind of preferred trading for players to law, stars to trading to signing long-term contracts, if you find yourself in a position where the Pirates are like, well, these guys have to get Brian Reynolds, or they're fucked because their fans are so angry they didn't spend any money in free agency. Mm-hmm. That's not a great way yeah. to start trade negotiations. All of a sudden, these pancake-eating motherfuckers are going to have to give up a lot. Like, I, the, the thing about trading for Brian Reynolds is, A, you have to give up prospects for him. Yes. B, every player like Brian Reynolds is a, time, a ticking clock to one of these contracts. I mean, the, you know, again, it's the same thing as with Julio. If you have these years where they're under club control, then you can trade that off against what you're signing them for down the road. But so it's, it's not necessarily as easy as that, though. Like having good young players in arbitration years, it's just giving you yourself a couple of years before all of a sudden, like there's something to slotting in. Maybe Trey Turner is not going to be a good player for 11 years, but there is something to saying. It just it doesn't make sense to sign anyone that age for 11 years. There or, is a reality that's happening throughout baseball. I agree that you have to adjust to it to some degree. But Brandon the, the adjustment, getting an eight-year deal. The adjustment is that you should have given Mitch Haniger the qualifying offer because giving him one year at 17 million or whatever the qualifying offer was suddenly looks pretty amazing as a deal compared to these other ones. They might, they might have just misread what the offseason was going to look like. They 100% misread and, what the offseason was going to look like. These things always move in a certain direction. There was the collusion offseason that we had, right, with Bryce Harper or whatever. But yes. in the end, Bryce Harper still ended up with a massive deal. It took a long time, but Bryce Harper still got that deal. And I think there's something to it takes a little bit longer in baseball, but like these deals aren't about to get shorter. Probably in, in, not. Unless the owners, they already was what, a lockout. What, like, I, I don't know what you want to have happen. This is the direction that... Well, what has to happen to be, is these deals have to continue backfiring. Because Alex Rodriguez signed for 10 years and $250 million. And did granted, it backfire? They had to, like, swallow part of the contract so that they could trade him for value. Yeah. But he was still a, other, he but was other a teams, good player for 10 years after the deal was signed. He was, but they had to eat part of his contract just to get good teams to take him on because he was making that much money. And because the team was that bad, which Texas just keeps on trying in free agency. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. The, right now, the chances of Texas finishing ahead of the Mariners next year is probably fairly high. Like, you, you really can't I, go I and... I contemplated that it's a bold prediction, something like that is a bold prediction, but ultimately I was not that pessimistic. The Mariners are coming off a year where they, had un- they did not miss a start from a starting pitcher. Unprecedented pitching health, yes. right? Not necessarily the best seasons of all time. Like, Robbie Ray regressed, some players regressed. But ultimately, very, very good health. Julio was injured a little bit, but they did have massive performances. Cal Rowley shouldn't have been what he was last year. They had a massive performance from Eugenio Suarez, who shouldn't have been as good as he was last year. Like, Julio Rodriguez was probably better than he should have been as a rookie. We well, assume sure. he's going to get better, but that's not how progression works no, necessarily. No, you can't count on that. You can't sure. just say next year Julio is going to be better than this year. The Mariners should assume that they are going to be a worse team next year. And I, I'm not... I think there are good moves that they've made. The two trades individually, they just aren't enough. And I'm happy with the idea of Teoscar Hernandez and Colton Wong. Again, I think those are good moves. But when coupled with losing Carlos Santana, again, who kind of looks like a steal, that number, what was it, $7 million he was getting paid? We'll see how the shift affects him. Even then, $7 million just for having him come in and DH every few days, play a little bit of first base, be another body, another bat. Like, that's money that the Mariners have. And the, they're just, there's money. That's it. 
Every team should be spending almost as much money as possible in these off seasons because the money is there. I, that, but again, if you're just locked into it for 10 years, I can't buy that argument. I think the time to take that swing is a couple years down the road when Has that player will be in their prime. That you, that you can point to that's been like, I mean, the you think Mar- I'm going to point to a team in baseball? But the Mariners are the team. They're the team who signed Robinson Cano. And what did it take? One year of rebuilding when they were 500 in a COVID year? And they ended up with very good players out of it? They got lucky on they, the Robinson they Cano with, deal. They ended up with very good prospects out of it, right? Kellenic was like a top 10 prospect when they traded for him, for Robinson Cano. So what is the downside to this? Is it out They also the had to like pay Robinson Cano for an entire year when... When he, they're also, by the way, Robinson Cohen's still on the books for next season, by the way, for the it Mariners. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. They had to pay him for an entire season we were suspended. <laughs> you remember that, right? There's a lot of bad shit that went on with that Good contract. Good times. I'm, I'm just saying the Mariners need to go out. It's over. Like, they've kind of missed the window. At this point, trading for somebody like Brian Reynolds is more or less, they can, they can patchwork together a couple of one- or two-year deals. But the answer is not going on the radio and insulting your fans. And that's what the Mariners have done for two fucking decades. They have ins- they have I mean, ins- there's no way the scenario where Jerry DePoto doesn't want to spend more money that, right that's, now. That's, that's the only thing that I will give. I don't think this is Jerry DePoto. This is not a Jerry DePoto issue necessarily. He's Jerry just DePoto, the one who has the weekly radio show. He has to, John Stanton doesn't have a weekly radio show. He has to deliver the message. And I, I think that is that is the only thing that we can point. Obviously, Jerry DePoto is trying his best or whatever within the budget. But and this wink, wink. There's a little bit of like, oh, Shohei's coming, right? And I think the Mariners are hinting at the idea that next year they would like to sign Shohei. And if they sign somebody this year, they can't sign Shohei next year. And they would I definitely like to sign Shohei next year. Would like to tell you how fucking massive the Shohei deal is going to be. I mean, and there are a lot of teams who didn't sign massive free agents who also know that Shohei is coming next year. The San Francisco Giants did not sign any free agent and they are aware that Shohei is going to be a free agent next year. The San Diego Padres are aware that Shohei is going to be a free agent. They can't afford to pay Shohei. They can afford to pay Shohei. Like, no, I guarantee no, you right now. Put, put it in the fucking, put it for <laughs> one year from today. <laughs> There will, at the very least, the Padres will make an offer. The, for we, there will be public reports that the, I don't know if they're going to sign him. There will be public reports that the Padres have made an offer to Shohei. They absolutely will have. The Red Sox will. The Yankees will. The Dodgers didn't sign he's anybody. Not, he's not signing in those markets. Where is he signing? He's signing in a place in the West Coast where he wants to be. We so San Francisco, I think, is 100% a threat. We don't know that for sure. There's, but the Dodgers have not. They let Trey Turner go. There's money to be made. Do you think the Dodgers wouldn't like to replace Clayton Kershaw with Shohei Otani? Like, the, there's going to be so many teams competing for Shohei. It'll be unprecedented. Aaron Judge is going to look like nothing compared to the Shohei deal. And if the Mariners are scared of 11 years for Trey Turner or whatever, 10 years for Aaron Judge... Like, obviously, they weren't even remotely in the mix for that one. But, like, that Shohei deal might be for 15 years. But I think, would you, well, first off, he's much, he's somewhat younger. But they're going, the deals are going to start when it is a player of that caliber. Of, there's, I mean, really, there's only one Shohei so the, and there's only one Aaron Judge. The one thing about less. these deals that I didn't really understand until I looked this up is it's really kind of tax cheating, basically, because your tax number is the average value of the entire contract. So if you stretch it out for, yeah. Even if you're effectively paying a guy for seven years, it's basically what you're not allowed to do in the NBA, but you are allowed to do in the NFL with void years and shit like that. 
Although, but that, that number is going to be fifty million a year. I think what you need to understand is there are some teams that are uniquely interested in certain players. The Yankees were uniquely interested in Aaron Judge. Sure. Because he has been a Yankee for many years. The teams never, it's the weirdest thing to me about baseball that teams really don't like to sign their own free agents. Well, I think just like you can sign an extension anytime you want for any amount. So if you get to free agency, odds are you haven't been offered that amount by that team. Sure. The Mariners, I think, are going to be more invested in Shohei relative to other free agents than other teams are. For the Giants, the number Shohei is going to be might. too high. John, they, they're not on the radio telling you that we're a mid-market There's, because they're going to be able to pay a player. 15. There was a separate the, Ichiro budget. There might be a separate Shohei budget. That each, how much did Ichiro get paid? But Nothing. when he came over, no one else was willing to invest that much in him except the Mariners, which is why they won two the fucking decades ago. It is. It is it is a radically different different team. budgets and a ra- and the, the like the Japanese tradition for Mariners baseball is gone. It is gone. I don't think it's gone. Name a Japanese player on the Mariners. The- Name a Japanese player on the Mariners in the last five years. You say Kikuchi. <laughs> okay, fine. Five years. Yes. Two years ago, <laughs> they let him walk. Well, I don't know that he was an Ichiro or a Shohei Otani. But I'm in just saying, if that mattered to them, if having having that that relationship with Japan and Japanese players matter to them. Like they didn't seem that in on Yoshida this off season, right? They I missed think out. it matters think to Saiyans, them with Saiyans guys who are transcendent superstars from Japan. I don't know that it matters but, to them with guys who okay, are like do you think role that the players Mariners, from Japan. Given everything that we've seen this off season are going to be in any position to sign the highest contract in all of baseball history. You're telling me but that the that's Seattle the point, is that if you don't Mariners, spend on other guys, you have better opportunity to spend in that situation. It, like if they sign Shohei next offseason, we'll look back on this and be like, even if he making $50 million, that great. still only pushes their payroll to maybe $200 million next year or less than that or whatever it is. I just, I don't think you're really recognizing how robust the market is going to be for Shohei. Like, I'm factoring in a $50 million contract. But the Yankees, it could go beyond that. The Yankees aren't going to decide that they're done spending money. The Dodgers aren't going to be done. Everyone has a number, which is why the San Francisco Giants didn't pay Aaron Judge fifty million a year. I There's think, always a number that teams are not willing to go past. I Otherwise, think, every player would be on the Yankees. I think they would have too. I think the the Giants might have done fifty million if he would have said, "I will sign with you for fifty million." He was he was going to go back to the Yankees. You don't think he was uh, going to sign with the Giants for twenty million a year more than he ever was? Ten got, million, ten million ten a year more. I don't, I, d- I don't know if that is for certain. I. It's easy to say that when the the situation is not the actually. The Padres were out willing there. to spend more yeah, on both like Trey Turner, one or two million more. We're not talking ten no, million. No, we're more. talking about forty million more, possibly. They wanted. They were willing to offer more years to players. The Padres are out there spending that's fucking a, that's, money. But again, if it's over an eleven-year contract, that's one or two million more per year. I'm talking about. You said ten million more a year for. for I judge. think. I think the Giants would have done it if if it would have been like we will do this. We will sign pen and paper. It's done if we can get to this number. I I don't I don't believe if it's that. ten years for fifty million. I think that happens. Because the difference ultimately, what is ten million dollars? What is the difference? It's another whole another player who's a starter. Oh, great! But it's Aaron Judge. It is the best play, the best hitter in all of baseball. But Aaron Judge's WAR is not that much. Not ten million more than the next best player. 
is it but he's already getting paid 40 million so is it let's say that the next best player is getting paid 20 million is it twice as good but then the next best free agent isn't making 20 million the next best free agent is making more than that I think the Giants are going to go into this next year with Jock Peterson and Mitch Haniger and think to themselves, I really wish we had Aaron Judge. And I think that they were ha- they would have been happy to have paid that number. I, I don't, don't think so. Whatever. It's a failed offseason. You're a failed offseason. <laughs> They've ended up, they started this offseason with a log jam in the outfield and they ended the offseason needing an outfielder or having Jared Kelnick hit every day. I mean, the, the only good right news here is... is Teoscar Hernandez or Sam Haggerty. The only good news is count me in. Sam Haggerty is getting a chance to play. Because they keep talking about the Mariners want to add a right-handed hitting outfielder. I'm like, well, we already got Teoscar Hernandez as right-handed. Julio's right-handed. And they only think that Haggerty can play against lefties, even though he's a switch hitter. So unless they're planning on platooning Haggerty and Kelnick, I don't quite get why you need another righty. And maybe that is the I, plan. What is Brian Reynolds a righty? Uh, I believe he may be a lefty. All, all the remaining free agents I named are either lefties or switch hitters. He's not a free agent. I, I, I am aware of that. I'm just noting oh, that he's a separately. switch hitter. Uh, and throws right. I, I, I think that the Mariners are going to trade for Brian Reynolds. I think that's quite possible. And the free the offseason will look different if that happens, which is why you shouldn't judge it before it's done. It's December 11th. That, I mean, free agency-wise, it's more or less done. There's not. There's no the splash. The wave of free agents. Again, you can be get better without a splash. Okay, but they're not going to have Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett when the Seahawks signed them. Were not splashes. They weren't. Football is a different sport. It it is a different sport. But those were not the guys who were the first players off the board in free agency for big money. I would be curious to know who look back on that offseason and remember who was. I feel like Chicago may have spent a bunch of money that offseason. Baseball free agency and football free agency are different things. And you know that to be true. I know they they both end up uh, not helping your team win that much. Oh yeah. Yeah, the Phillies they they were really upset about being in the World Series last year. Not help. No help from Bryce Harper there. All right, are we going to do the Gonzaga grievances? Oh so the Huskies... It was, a ni- it was a nice run that the Mariners had. It was, it was a good one-year run. We'll be ignoring them by fucking August. Took an early lead Friday in the kennel, maintaining it through the midway point of the first half, only to concede, see Gonzaga cruise the rest of the way to their conce- 70th consecutive home win, easier for me to say, by a 77-60 to 60 final. Braxton Mia picked up two fouls in the first four minutes mm-hmm. and did not play the rest of the half. Mm-hmm. Then had no fouls after halftime. They didn't matter at that point. Although they didn't he care. Was not he, a big he, was play, he was not playing it. Braxton Mia got the fucking message after, once he came back in. He was just like, I'm not touching these people. If I go anywhere near Gonzaga, it's going to be a foul. There was, there was no need to contest that Drew Timmy layup in it's transition. Not, he did not. T- Drew Timmy. He did touch him, actually. Yes, he did. It was a foul. The amount of contact it takes for something to be a foul against Drew Timmy is not like... Like, you could see the Husky players in the first half, like Keon Manyfield or whatever. Maybe it was... Uh, well, there's a lot of Jackson Grant in contact in the paint, although it's kind of difficult to tell whether he got fouled or that's just, you know, he's maybe the, not the most coordinated. look around at the refs in the bench being like, what is happening? And it's just like, dog... But also, you're playing at the kennel now. Well, they've, Keon Manyfield has literally never played a college road game before Friday. <laughs> That was his first college like road, true game. road game. Well, I mean, was there was was a fake road game? They you played there was neutral a, site games. That's not a road game. You think there was a lot of yeah. St. Mary's fans there at the in Anaheim? He didn't play at Oregon State. 
Oh, they did play at Oregon State. You're not. Oh, oh, damn it. Wow. Well, I really screwed that up. Anyway, but you can see them. It wasn't but also like, Oregon State is not. It's not but it same. wasn't like the refereeing against Oregon State is not the same as it is against Gonzaga. When you go there, Drew Timmy is like a fucking god to those refs and all of Gonzaga. It is the tightest. That's the difference. That is why college basketball is a bad sport. You get rid of the foul rules in college basketball. It is possibly possibly a watchable sport. I actually think the, the fact that there's this big home court advantage that there is in college basketball is one of the best things about it. I think it's a huge problem for pro sports that home field advantage is, is diminishing because you want the home crowd to go home happy. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Games should be fixed for the home team. Not fixed, <laughs> but it should, should be slanted for the home team because it's random. I mean, it's not random in college basketball. It's the teams with money. It's random. If you recruit all the best players, if you play no good teams throughout the season, if your star player sticks around for a fifth year because he's going to get a car dealership after, it's random. Only his fourth year. Uh, but in pro sports, you play home like you play an even number of home games and road games other than the NFL because they decided to have an odd number of games. Great call. Uh, and then in the it's playoffs, been really fun this year. Bring them on, more home games. In the playoffs, you've earned your home games, so definitely there should be an advantage to the home team. I was saying, good saying business. to Chris at the game, I was like, "Why are we so fucking bad at home? It's it has been two years in a row of just this is the NFL. Home field ex- advantage doesn't exist anymore. It's not the NFL. It's the Seattle Seahawks. But no, I mean, home field advantage probably still exists in the NFL. It's diminished the Seahawks have been fucked by the refs two weeks in a row at home, though. Like, are you saying that th- that the Seahawks have anti-home field advantage? I agree that games should be called properly when your team is at home instead of improperly. But, like, it is not fun to have Braxton and Mia only play. If you're, like, if you are the Huskies. But this is, a, this is also a Mike Hopkins thing. That he didn't play him? And I get it because basically they were playing well most of the first half. They, he didn't need to bring Mia back in. And then it got away at the end, and there were no stoppages. Even if he had been at the table, he couldn't have gotten in the game. It was a Could weird have called stretch. Out. But like the still the ran out of the, timeouts very It early. is not the thing that you're talking about, about like it's all entertainment. None of this shit matters, right? College basketball's stupid. You know? Like every all of it is stupid. Football's stupid, soccer's stupid, college basketball's stupid. Well, college sports are arguably less stupid from that in that regard because they are at least preparing players for a career. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and paying them now. It's professional sports. Really, what we're talking about is college basketball. But you want to see Drew Timmy bang with Braxton Mia, don't you? Like, is it is it more fun? Is Drew Timmy, when he was flexing to the crowd because he owned Jackson Grant, it's just like, sick, dude. Like, I'm sorry. This is like a fucking wreck basketball that you're playing here. You want to see him play against a big man. You want to see what that's like. And by fouling, giving Braxton Mia those two fouls early, they removed from us the joy of watching. I In the end... Everybody should love their competitor, right? Because Drew Timmy gives him a chance. Braxton Mia gives Drew Timmy a chance to compete. And Drew Timmy is not interested in competing. And that's why he stayed at Gonzaga. And that's fine. You don't have to be. But if you want to win forever, you should want to not be beasting on Jackson Grant. You should want to play against an actual big man who can defend you. And you know what? When your bodies hit each other, sometimes it's not a foul. Sometimes you can let some big men bang in the post or whatever. In the post. It was him fouling him but for behind it like the first foul it's garbage, was whatever but it's it's just like it doesn't even affect the play you don't need to that's call this don't do it just let him have the fucking layup but one foul shouldn't be like well the game's over braxton mia got one foul 
What was his second foul in four minutes? And also, again, what was the first foul? It was garbage too. I, that probably was just banging in the post. Like there, there are some times that you can just let people play basketball. Where I don't even know if we're doing coach's corner when my kids are playing on the court. Seeing how late we are into this podcast already, I don't think we're doing I coach's corner. I don't see a little week. bit of contact and stop everything. Make everybody go to each side and talk to each other. Kick some kids out or whatever. We're playing fucking basketball here. Sometimes your bodies hit each other. That's the sport. That's the only thing that soccer has right is not freaking out constantly over everything. Not the only thing that soccer has right. Soccer has a lot of things right. I don't know if I would but, say that. But, but like when you play soccer, if there's a little bit of contact, you're just like, all right, get it together. Move on. Keep playing. Right? That's Re- how the sport should work. waving play on is one of the better parts of soccer. Like, yes. That is how the sport should exist. It should take quite a bit for a person to leave the game. If if the entire sport, college basketball, well, is predicated... Well, obviously, have foul outs. It, like, that's, that's, literally that goes why? without saying. What is the point? If the entire sport is predicated on the best players not playing, why are we watching this sport? Why did I tune in to fucking Root Sports 2 to watch this bullshit <laughs> fucking game? It's stupid. And I just... It's it's great for Drew Timmy to get that W against UW. He doesn't have to play against another competitive player who I don't know if Braxton is on the NBA radar or whatever. But at least Not a person really. who's tall enough to play in the NBA, and and who Jackson has Grant is also tall enough to play in the NBA. Who has those skills? If he doesn't want to play against a good player, that's fine. Don't play against a good player. But you you don't love your competitor if all you want is to play against weak players. It's like me going ham against the kids that I play basketball against. Anyway, nice dub, Gonzaga. So three starters scored double figures <laughs> for the Huskies, led by 14 from Keon Brooks Jr., 13 with six assists for P.J. Fuller. But the bench shot a combined three of 15. Uh, Drew Timmy had 22 points for Gonzaga. Julian Strother posted a double-double of 18 points in 12 boards. He'll likely be the first Gonzaga player drafted. You know, back home on Tuesday to host a surging Cal Poly team. We oh, mentioned gosh. last week they beat Cal Baptist at home, succeeding where the Huskies failed, then crushed Portland State at home on Saturday. Those two results moved the Mustangs up more than 50 spots in Ken Palm from 275 to 219. On Saturday, the Huskies will become their lowest-rated Ken Palm opponent this season in number 316 Idaho State, who has just one win in nine games this season against Division I foes, although the Bengals were somehow competitive in a four-point loss at BYU, 12-point loss at Utah. Not that far off from what Arizona lost by at Utah, amazingly. Did they? Yeah. I saw Duke was playing some team. God, it was like hilariously random school that they were playing against this weekend. I was looking at it and I was just like, Tarleton State? What are we? No, it was like even no, way more random else. than that. I was just like, what are we even doing here? Like, what is going on at this point? Can you look up who that was? I was so fascinated. Uh, who they played, I think it was on Saturday. And I was just like, I mean, the. They were played in the Garden like earlier in the week. They, I think, no, I'm not saying that Duke doesn't play against good teams. Maryland Eastern Shore. <laughs> it's just like they pick up the dub against Maryland Eastern Shore. They they did beat them by 27. <laughs> uh, Utah women's basketball beat the Cougs in their Pac-12 opener Sunday in Seattle, despite a career high 40 points from Washington State's Charlize Lager Walker, who made seven three pointers. Just two other Cougars scored more than three points. They shot 10 of 39 from the field, besides Lager Walker. By contrast, all five Husky starters scored double figures, led by 21 from Lauren Shorts, with Delea Daniels 12 points, 10 rebounds, reporting, recording her third double double of the season. Huskies moved to eight and one. They will host the Husky Classic next week, taking on Liberty and SIU Edwardsville. <laughs> Liberty, 2-5, and five, have just played defending champs South Carolina, losing 88-49. to 49. The uh, SIU Edwardsville 
0-8 on the season, uh-huh. have lost five times by 40-plus points, including a 105-32 defeat at Louisville. The people of Edwardsville are very disappointed. Is that Southern Illinois, Edwardsville? Yes. Okay. Yes. Wazoo's low-key not bad in Ken Palm. They've had a weird season, but uh, yeah, they are not bad. Uh, UW, we'll do UW, UW football now. Uh, defensive, defensive tackle Tui Leitu Lasanoa told reporters Saturday that he will return for his sixth year of eligibility. So another Husky putting off the NFL or, or at least entering the draft to uh, finish out his eligibility. Uh, Richard freshman cornerback Zakari Spears announced he's putting his name in the transfer portal. Spears was recorded by recruited by Jimmy Lake's coaching staff. Did not really factor was, into the mix. He thanked Coach Lake. It was like very notable. <laughs> was like, yeah, he thanked Coach okay. Lake. There was nothing in there. Okay, with DeBoer. Did not seem to enjoy like, this season that not, not personally familiar with him. <laughs> I guess that leaves us with the crack in here. Uh, uh, I will say that the Michael Penix announcement, like it just it changes the whole off season. We're going to talk more about this in the urine review. Wow. Okay. Uh, the Kraken homestand ended. You're going to boldly predict Huskies Pac-12 championship or something? We'll see which direction I'm going to go here. Wow. Uh, Kraken homestand ended with back-to-back losses. They fell 4-2 to two to Pont- Montreal on Tuesday. Their losing streak extended to three Friday in D.C. where the Kraken lost 4-1 to the Capitals, but they did pick up a win earlier Sunday to snap that losing streak. Uh, and and won that one five to two over the Florida Panthers. Uh, Shane Wright scored his first career goal in his return to the Kraken after a stint in the AHL, and was subsequently loaned to Team Canada for the IAHF World Junior Championships, taking part in a training camp that will conclude Monday with the selection of final rosters ahead of that tournament, which will be played December twenty sixth through January fifth. Uh, other bit of Kraken news, defenseman Jamie Alexiak was suspended three games after receiving a match penalty on Friday for an illegal check to the head of a member of the Capitals. All right, I guess we came through that, that quicker than I realized. Uh, do you want to do Coach's Corner after we Is that it? That That's everything? Uh, Kraken Road Trip continues at Tampa Bay Tuesday, at Carolina on Thursday, and then back home Sunday to take on Win- Winnipeg, St. Louis on Tuesday. Uh, so I'm coaching two teams this year. I, I ended up not coaching the third team. I'm not, You're not coaching, not coaching the, the kindergarten team. Yeah. yeah. I just felt like there was a little bit below me in my coaching ability. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, am an, I do have... I explained to you some plays to run the other day. Oh, I'm excited. I'm pretty ready. I was a little bit apprehensive going in because you're meeting all these kids for the first time. And I'm like, the, the thing that's funny for me as a coach that I'm nervous that this is maybe me not loving, well, loving my competitor or whatever, uh, not loving the opportunity, I would say, is I'm nervous that the kids are going to be too good oh, when really? they show up or whatever. Well, last year there was the kid whose dad was the head coach at Mariner High School, and I'm Correct. like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Like, I shouldn't be coaching your kid at all. Don't let me teach him anything. I don't know. And I'm very upfront about that. Now, <laughs> uh but none of the kids play like select basketball or anything like that. As far as I could tell, I didn't know this after practice one last year. None of the kids' dads appear to be the head coach of any high school programs around the city. So I think that was probably You're a positive. You're keep an eye on that. Uh, yeah, I'll watch, watch out for that one. But I like that the it's fifth and sixth grade now. We're playing with 10-foot hoops. We're more or less playing basketball. The only difference between uh, just full-on basketball and this, they still sort of like match up with people beforehand. There's no wristbands or anything, but like 
they have people who they generally have to guard. You can leave them. There's like different times when you can leave them or whatever. You can't play uh, defense in the backcourt. And I was so ready to full court press. I mean, I remember that role. So my sixth grade team, which was pretty pretty talented, we had, uh, uh, why am I blanking on them? Gerald Smiley, who went on to play at Rainier Beach and was drafted in the MLB draft, played in the Rangers organization. I think he's now... He's a Rainier Beach baseball coach. Is he? Yeah, I, I was thinking that. Uh, and so we weren't allowed in our league to defend in the backcourt. But then we played in a tournament, like a holiday tournament over uh, MLK Day weekend, where we were allowed to defend in the backcourt. And I was like so excited to actually get to do that in practice because pressuring was my favorite thing to do at that age. Yeah. Uh, definitely a real estate agent now. And apparently the founder of some app. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I thought the kids, I liked, there was like a, a pretty high degree of skill while not necessarily being like select all select basketball players or whatever. So I've got a big man, Messiah. It's just like, I'm literally learning these kids right away. Right. And Messiah instantly, I was like, that's my dude seeing him. So he's like down low defending. We, I just like, we're just going to scrimmage for the entire first practice. So I can get a sense of like what these kids skills are, what we need to work on or whatever. Like, I just want to see them play basketball. And, uh, seeing him down low instantly, like he's getting rebounds, looking for like outlet passes down the court. Cause we're going to hit some of those, you know, there were a few where he, he made maybe two aggressive passes. And I was just like, I was like, look for that. If you don't see it, get it to one of your guards and go. Uh, and cause you got it. You have to move fast in these games. There's no half court offense, right? There's no offense at all. It's just fast breaks or nothing. So I was pretty excited about having a couple of big men down low uh, and somebody who I think like skill-wise can do that and can defend other teams' big men, which was pretty important to me. Uh, and then also a lot of uh, very aggressive defense, which I'm sure you saw last year, which is like that was my initial instinct. I remember talking about the team that I had last year uh, before the first game, and I was like, I think they're bad. And then the first game happened, and it's like, wow, we're awesome because <laughs> I'm only seeing these kids against these kids. And I mean, that was probably especially difficult to calibrate. This year, you're going up like from third, to third, fourth grade to. It was just fourth grade, just and fourth. now it's fifth, sixth. So I'm a little nervous that there might be other teams that are like highly sixth graders, because I think my team's mostly fifth graders. So a little difficult to calibrate that. But last year was difficult because you hadn't seen teams play basketball in two years. Yes. Uh, but very aggressive as far as defense goes. Like these kids are getting after it in the same way that they did last year. Like they are hounding the ball. I mean, I, I was play we only had nine there. And so I was playing as the 10th or whatever. And I was like, damn, these kids are swarming me <laughs> every time I touch the ball. So, uh, and you know, I got to get out there myself. Oh, obviously. Even if, even if I'm not out there, I'll just run back and forth and watch them or whatever. I think you need to install some SOS cloppy principles. What's that? The like Sonic style ninety early nineties defense, and then the storm played it at times with trapping and things like that. I don't know what the rule. I have to figure out the rules as far as trapping goes. Yeah, but uh, I was mostly joking about that. So. No, I might. But I mean, as much aggressive it is a great as, system. as as we can use defensively, I'm excited about using. So I'm gonna start installing some plays next week. I'm just like, can we get a pick and roll going? Last year, we never even practiced any plays. Right, it was just free form total football. Like the this year, <laughs> I don't know if it was total football. <laughs> That's many you described it that way. Uh, oh, it really reminds me. Of I I I broke it down this year 
from the very beginning. And I was like, these are your guards. These are your forwards. These are your big men. I'm like, this is where we want. We want these players handling the ball. We had a little bit of an issue last year with some big men thinking that they were ball handlers when they were not and getting the ball stolen from them. So I was like, these are the players that are going to get the ball moving and going to facilitate. I want these players on the wing. I want these I want these dudes in the paint, like knocking bodies down there. But Drew if your Jamie's center down. has the outlet passes, I, I really think the high post, running the high post through him and having cutters off I of that is the way to go. I haven't seen him do the high post. You gotta just, try that. Just like getting rebounds and then looking down court. I was like, you're already ahead of where I would have expected you to be at. The fact that he like was getting those boards and then instantly was looking down court for those passes. I was like, great. This is something we can work with. It's like little Jokic. <laughs> <laughs> sixth grade Jokic. He'll be on my list of ten players to watch. <laughs> Messiah in the, in the fifth grade, fifth sixth grade league. Uh, so I it was it really reinvigorated me about coaching basketball. After one practice, I was just like, hell yeah, let's freaking go! I was having fun out there. Well, I look forward to these updates. So you've got one more practice before the winter break, and then uh, the games start. Yeah, as as most teams do, we take a two week break for uh, the holidays, yeah. and then come back. I think there's this season is starting a week later this year, also. So there's going to be more time to uh, <laughs> work your magic. Yeah, <laughs> to work my coaching magic. <laughs> Talking to the parents, I'm like, yeah, we're just going to scrimmage mostly. <laughs> well, I look forward to bringing back this segment and uh, hopefully having. Uh, some Mrs. Fantasy Genius uh, <laughs> on at some point to discuss her observations of your. She coaching. didn't get to see practice. The the little kid practice, the second grade practice. Uh, I thought I thought the skill level definitely definitely higher than first grade. Okay, noticeably higher. Oh, so I was asking the kids. So the second grade team, I saw somebody there, and they were wearing a Thunder jersey, and I was just like, Psh, I already hate this kid. Um, <laughs> and and I was looking at it, and I was like, Who is Williams on the Thunder? And <clears throat> I asked, I was just like asking his parents or whatever. And I was like, who is that? I have no idea who this is. And they're like, oh, it's Jalen Williams. And I was like, okay. And then you didn't somehow remember that Jalen Williams was on the 10 players to watch. The other. But not that Jalen Williams. The other Jalen Williams. Uh, But then they were like, he's the first ever Vietnamese player in the NBA. That's why we have the jersey. And I was like, damn. I All had right. no idea the story about Jalen Williams until you mentioned it to me. I was pretty pretty hyped on that. And I was he, like, and the dad was like, we wouldn't have gotten a Thunder jersey otherwise. And I was like, we're good, we are good. Totally understand that. And then so I was I was excited about Jalen Williams, J A Y L A N. So actually, two Vietnamese players with Vietnamese heritage in the NBA this season. Who's the uh, other one? Johnny Juzang, who oh. has not yet played in the game but is on a two way contract with the Jazz, is the other. I. So. I thought that was kind of cool that there was a Vietnamese player or player with Vietnamese heritage in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, they won me over with the Thunder jersey. And then I was going through <laughs> the kids and I was like, tell me your favorite basketball player or team. Say your name. Tell me your favorite basketball player or team or whatever. And the one kid was like, can we say college? And I was like, just anybody. Basically, just say a word. Say your name <laughs> and say a word. Some, some like the, the younger kids, I told them to say their favorite basketball player or team. And then they just said basketball. And I was like, yes, basketball. <laughs> It's <laughs> like you good. missed the prompt slightly, but that's okay. <laughs> just say a word. Someone and, should have said this team. <laughs> this team. <laughs> the Knicks and/or Bulldogs. Uh, and the so the kid was like, "Can I say any team at all?" And I was like, "Yes, whatever." And he was like, "Gonzaga," and I was like, "Not that team." <laughs> <laughs> wrong week for that one. Said the wrong answer. I don't know if anybody got it, if anybody thought. I think Luca, at the very least, thought it was funny. But our name is for that team is the Bulldogs. And I was like, we are named after the Georgia Bulldogs. 
or Butler. Like There's no state. Yeah. <laughs> we're named after any other Bulldogs. <laughs> I mean, they really don't even go by that. They're the, just the Zags. But the other thing is, so they name the teams in, in the... Uh, in the league or whatever from something, right? Like the Knicks, all the teams in that league are going to be like Eastern Conference basketball teams. So I have no, I haven't seen the other team names. All I know is Bulldogs. I have no idea which Bulldogs this is after. If this is West Coast Conference teams <laughs> and I am not the Gales or the Banana Slugs or whatever. You know, the Banana Slugs are not in the West Coast Conference. They're not. You know, first off, the Waves. The Waves, yeah. I was like, the pilots? If, if you give me fucking Bulldogs, I'm like, I will talk to the city of Renton and I will get my team team name changed <laughs> I want to see you try. if we can be a different because the west coast conference has a lot of good names in it so we'll be the pilots are they in the west coast oh, the, well, the toreros actually now that i think about it the toreros I'm, the, anybody, anybody else everybody else has good nicknames in the west coast conference except for the one most annoying team in the west coast conference or the dons uh, the dons is actually right? a pretty good one too wow I'm, if if we're all together and i'm like dons on three i'd be all about it Cougars is too generic. I'm not a big fan of that. Who's the Cougars? BYU. Oh, they're in the West Coast Conference. They are in the West Coast Conference. Wow. Okay. They're in the West for basketball, but they're in the Big 12. For, are they moving to the Big 12? I I don't know if that's... I guess that must be for all conference sports. They'll probably leave in the West Coast Conference, but for now, they are in there. It feels a little kind of strange for them being in there. Well... Anyway, yeah, no, you can mark it in stone. I will talk to the city of Renton <laughs> about changing... The t- if that's it. If it's SEC teams or whatever, I don't care. We can be the Bulldogs. Oh, yeah. But there are too many good names in the West Coast Conference for me not. And they won't all be covered. There'll be one that's open. You would think. Yeah. They, they are still in there for the moment. So, Who else we got? Hey, go, uh, through, go through the team names. We need Luke here. <clears throat> so, again, the Bulldogs, Gales, Cougars, Dons, Pilots, Santa Clara is the Broncos. We don't want that one either. <laughs> the Lions of Loyola Marymount, uh, the Pepperdine Waves, San Diego Toreros, and the Pacific Tigers. All right. There's a few generic ones, but there's some of the all-time greats in the West Coast Conference. So, anyway, City of Renton, if that's the case, you'll be hearing from me. <laughs> in my life. I've got a lot of problems with you. People. Oh, way a great way to go out. Take us out on the same note we finished. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. And stay tuned for the uh, the Urine Music podcast. We promised that last week, but sadly did not get that recorded in time. So it will be out later this week.